Now today we conclude, believe it or not, our Lenten series titled Words from the Cross. And uh, of course this is the final week of Lent, that 40-day period that's intended to parallel the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness, being tempted by those temptations common to us all. And we've invested the last uh, five weeks so far in the last six hours of Jesus' life. And during those six hours, he spoke what are traditionally known as the seven last words, really the seven last statements that Jesus made from the cross. And as we've been saying throughout the series, uh, words spoken during crucifixion were, were grueling just because it was so difficult to catch your breath even uh, uh, it, when experiencing that, that was the whole point. It kind of caused a person to suffocate. So to catch a breath, you had to kind of pull yourself up. So speaking would have been absolutely grueling. So our assumption is that Jesus really wanted to get these words out there. He wanted them to be heard. Some of them he could have prayed silently to himself, but instead he prayed them aloud. He said things. So today we look at the fifth word from the cross, and while it's our our last Sunday addressing the seven words, uh, word six and seven will be part of our Maundy Thursday service. Those words are these. Jesus said, it is finished. That's the sixth word from the cross. And then his final word from the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit, praying to God. Now when Jesus said, it is finished, Interestingly, he used a business word, a word from the realm of commerce and trade. It was the Greek word tetelestai. He just said a single word. He didn't speak a sentence. He just said tetelestai, which any business person of the day would have known and known well because that was the word that in our context would have been stamped on bills when they were paid in full. Paid in full. And simply hanging on the cross, his sixth word was paid in full. And what he was paying in full was, of course, your debt and mine, a debt we could never pay that he didn't owe, but paid on our behalf. It is finished. And then, of course, into your hands I commit my spirit. The, the trust involved in that as he was experiencing the separation from God that we deserved, he still was able to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A guide for us all as we think about death to this life. But today, the fifth word which comes from John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. Let me read that for us. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, in a way, this this fifth word from the cross feels different than all the rest 
uh, so far. It, it could be read as a simple statement of fact, you know, a dying man on the cross saying, I'm thirsty. And we could wonder what meaning does that have for us in, in this day? Turns out it has a whole lot of meaning. We'll focus just on three things today. Uh, the fifth word shows us the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus really was fully human. It shows us Jesus' thirst for God and what that meant for us, what that means for us. And, and finally, it shows God's longing for people, God's thirst for people, for you and me and, and everyone everywhere. So first, the humanity of Jesus. Uh, I was reflecting with some, uh, some pastor friends recently, just last week even, that in my role here at Fifth, now in my 16th year, believe that or not, uh, I have been present with many people who are very close to death to this life. I, I, I went back and just did some quick looking. I believe I've officiated over 100 funerals at Fifth. And consider it an honor, really. Some way feeling like I've been in that place of burying almost a generation. But we're family together. Maybe you've had the experience of being very close to someone who is near death to this life, or, or maybe you haven't. If a person is still conscious when they're approaching death to this life, it's common for them to become very thirsty. That's a regular kind of thing. It, it is uh, also often true that swallowing has become very difficult, maybe even impossible. So often a family member or maybe a nurse or hospice worker will put an ice chip on a person's tongue and just kind of let it dissolve slowly. They, they also make uh, little, little sponges on kind of a lollipop-like stick and they can, you know, you can dip the sponge in in water and just moisten uh, the tongue. It's, it's that scene that we have here today. You know, wine vinegar on a sponge, on a stick, offered up to Jesus, just dabbing the tongue. There, there's a larger conversation. Jesus was offered something to drink multiple times in, in the gospel accounts and there's kind of different takes in different gospels and probably at different times. Some think it might have been something to make the experience of crucifixion even worse that would make you sick to your stomach. Imagine that, that would be horrible. So at one point Jesus refused a drink. But here the Apostle John specifies it was wine vinegar, which was the, the drink of the commoners. It was, it was the cheap beer of the common man, right? It, so a jar of it was there and they dipped some on a sponge and offered it to Jesus and he received it. Uh, and the point, one point is this, Jesus was fully human. He wasn't just kind of human. He wasn't just half human and half God. He was fully human. He didn't get a pass on the hard realities of dying because he was fully God. Prior to his death, he thirsted. 
just like we thirst prior to death. And then he died, just like we die. Sometimes in our culture, you, you kind of feel like a Debbie Downer when you bring up the reality that all of us will actually die. And we have to ask ourselves, why does that feel like a Debbie Downer in our culture when it is so obviously true? God meets us in that reality. This, this was an important point to emphasize in the Apostle John's day that Jesus thirsted because there were other ideas floating around about him that opposed this idea. Gnosticism was the belief that material things were bad and spiritual things were good. That's a very simple summary, but that catches the essence of it. Therefore, there's no way a God would condescend to be a material being. God is good and therefore only spiritual in nature. And as the argument goes, and pardon me for the earthiness of this, us humans poop and pee and throw up. And there's no way a God would become one of us and become subject to all that. I mean, this belief system led to one of the great heresies the church had to confront called docetism. It, it's based, the, the name is based on the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. Docetism was the belief that Jesus did not have a real human body, but only appeared to have one. As the argument went, it said he, he wasn't a human being with a human body, he only seemed to be human because everybody knows that there's no way God would slum it and become a human being with all that we human beings endure and experience. That was inconceivable in that belief system. And throughout the New Testament, you see the apostles and, and writers of the books of the New Testament countering this idea. Galatians is, is one of them. Because the whole claim of the gospel is that this is exactly what God did. In Jesus, he became a human just like us. Whole deal. The whole deal. He took on our flesh and blood, says the book of Hebrews. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. In this fifth word from the cross, Jesus shows us that he was indeed fully human, just like us in every way. With one caveat, Jesus was fully human, but until this time on the cross, there was one aspect of being human he had not yet experienced. Jesus had not yet experienced the separation from God brought about by sin. Think of this now. The Son of God became a human being, certainly, that was a drastic change. But in his life, Jesus did not sin. And it's sin that causes separation from God. So throughout his life, Jesus did not experience something that you and I experience daily. The brokenness. The, the separation 
we experience from God apart from Christ. The, the longing, the thirsting for God as we live in a not quite fully restored to God's presence reality. I might go as far to say that we human beings experience that separation as normal because it's all we've known. We were were born into it and have never known anything except that separation. It's the spiritual water in which we swim, so to speak. We've never known anything different. And to, to see that we're swimming in that water takes conscious evaluation and some revelation by the Lord, I believe. Therefore, from our perspective, this brokenness kind of seems normal. But according to the Bible, it's not normal. It's broken. It's not the way God created the world to be. We know this from the book of Genesis, the first two chapters. God created everything beautiful, and it was only our willful disobedience that brought this brokenness, this this breach in relationship into the world. And it has forever played out in this way. You and I know that something's wrong. We feel it in our gut. We feel it in our spirit. Something's amiss. Something's off. Something's not right. And that something isn't just out there somewhere. We know it's right here. This is broken. I'm broken. And I know prior to meeting Jesus, I had no idea what that was about. And I felt terribly embarrassed because I thought I was the only one. See, up until this point, Jesus lived in unhindered relationship with God the Father. He had never known the separation from God brought about by sin until the cross. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you've been tracking with the series, it was a couple weeks ago when Pastor Brian preached on the fourth word from the cross. That's where Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I, I think it was in that moment, and who knows how this really worked, but our understanding is that what Jesus did on the cross was he bared the burden for our sin. He took on himself the, the full separation from God that was due to us. And whether that happened just at the moment he died, we don't know, but it sure seems like it was coming on as he was on the cross. And as he began to to experience this separation from God that he had never known before, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was only on the cross that Jesus experienced that separation from the Father, and his first reaction was to cry out. Separation from God was a new and terrifying experience for him. It was an experience he had never had and probably couldn't imagine from a human perspective. He had read Psalm 42 his whole earthly life, but now he prayed it with all new meaning. As the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? I I thirst. I long for God. When can I go and meet with God? Because now I'm separated, right? Now, as God, I think we can be very sure that Jesus already understood this. But as a human being, 
He had never experienced it. He had never experienced the separation from God from which he had come to save everyone everywhere until this very moment. I thirst for God. He had never thirsted for God in this way from a place of separation. And what a thirst it was. The dryness of life without God is like walking in a desert in the heat of the day with no water. Psalm 63 captures it. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. I'm sure you've had this experience. I have it often. Can often look around at the world and think, yep, dry and parched land where there is no water. I thirst, Jesus said. I thirst for God in that dry and parched land. He had never thirsted like this before, desiring above all else the God from whom he was now separated, longing for that relationship to be made right again, whole again, restored. He knew it's what he was created for. And he wanted that back. Remember, Jesus was the one who said this, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. There it is again, right? A little bit of water becoming a spring, a cup of water becoming a little bit of water becoming a river. This is what the Holy Spirit does for us. Jesus is the one who satisfies our spiritual thirst and yet here he hangs on the cross thirsting for God. I mean, let's, let's not miss the, the amazing grace and generosity of God in, in this very moment. God in Christ hanging on the cross thirsting for God because he willingly took upon himself the sin of the whole world and suffered the full separation from God that was ours to bear forever. I thirst, said Jesus. It's amazing grace. Amazing. And, and I think we should all take comfort in the reality that Jesus knows what it feels like to be separated from God. He knows that experience of looking around at the world and thinking, dry and parched land where there is no water. He knows what it is to long to be reconciled to God. And, and all of this just reveals the Father's heart for people, doesn't it? I mean, it, it speaks of another, even more important kind of thirst, God's thirst for people. God's longing for everyone everywhere to come home to him. I mean, it's why God sent Jesus in the first place, isn't it? Or, or maybe better put, it's why God came to earth in the person of Jesus in the first place. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. To save the world, to save you and me and everybody else. That's God's heart. 
You know, the scripture makes that very clear too from 1 Timothy. God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. I mean, Jesus expressed this desire to gather people to himself. He was mostly speaking in this context of the the lost sheep of Israel. But I take it to reflect his heart for everyone. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. There's the problem. It's us. God wants everyone to come home to him. I think it's really important in our cultural day and time to come back to the biblical meaning of very important biblical words. And one of those very important biblical words is the word righteousness. We tend to think of righteousness as doing everything right. Meaning I'm righteous if I haven't misbehaved. You know, we we think of it as being perfect from a behavioral perspective. That's not the biblical understanding of righteousness. Biblically, righteousness refers to a right relationship where nothing is amiss. Please get this. If you've tuned out the whole rest of the sermon, get this. The meaning of the biblical word righteousness. It's so important to understanding the full claim of the gospel. You see, in Jesus, God not only forgives us for all we've done wrong in the past, bringing, so to speak, a negative spiritual account balance back to zero, but God gives us the perfect righteousness of Christ, increasing our newly zeroed spiritual account balance accomplished by God's forgiveness to an infinitely large reserve based on the perfectly validating performance record of Jesus. So we're forgiven, get back to zero, but then we're given the perfect righteousness of Christ. You go from zero to 10 kazillion, an infinite reserve. That's the gospel, friends. Never settle for half a gospel. Never believe that it's just forgiveness for stuff I've done wrong in the past. Because you'll never experience the the full reconciliation to God that I believe God is offering us in Christ because we have to understand he's forgiven us but also applied to us the perfect righteousness of Christ such that we in our interactions with God the Father can come before the throne of grace with confidence, right? I mean, pick your verse if you know the Bible. There's all sorts of stuff in scripture about this. But we can come to God with this confidence that we've not just been forgiven for our stuff in the past and we might, we're kind of teetering on whether we're in or not now. No, when God looks at us, he sees the resume of Jesus, the perfectly validating performance record of Jesus. And this is why human beings can now approach God with confidence, not because of anything we've done on our own, but because of faith in what Jesus has done for us. That's the gospel. And that is incredible news. 
incredible news. It's such a weird place to be, isn't it, as a follower of Jesus who has experienced God's forgiveness and having this righteousness of Christ applied to us, to kind of think about extending this offer to fellow human beings. It's such a weird place to be, isn't it? Trying to extend to others the grace that all of us need desperately, but which we resist for whatever reason. And our call is to just simply be like Jesus in that. That's all we can do. Keep showing up, keep saying, hey, this is, this is real. Right? The Apostle Paul talked about this righteousness, this, this heart of the gospel. It's what he meant in Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. See, in, in the gospel, in the story of what Jesus has done for us, the righteousness of God, the perfectly right relationship between Jesus and God the Father is given to us by faith. That's the wow. That's why Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, culturally, the lens through which we look would have us read that verse like this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for behaving appropriately and never doing anything wrong, for they will be filled. That is not what that means. That's a misunderstanding of the biblical word righteousness. What that means is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right relationships where nothing is amiss. And specifically, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a restored and right relationship with God where nothing is amiss. And that's the kicker. In Christ, you can live as a human being in this world right now with full confidence that in your relationship with God, there is nothing amiss. Nothing amiss. Now, you know yourself like I know me, and you're thinking, yeah, but I screw up every... Yep. They're parallel conversations, not two options. Right? We are in Christ. We have been justified God has declared us to be righteous, to be in a perfectly right relationship with him. That's what happens when we're saved, past tense. The Bible also says we are being saved. That's the working out of this thing, this reality in life, where we need to embrace our identity in Christ, coming back to it day and day, time and time again throughout the day. I take this to be what Jesus meant when he taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven. And he wasn't saying pray these exact words whenever you pray, but use this pattern whenever you pray. Start with remembering who God is and who you are, that God is your good, good father and that you're a child who has the perfect righteousness of Christ applied to you and you therefore can believe by faith and claim that there is nothing amiss in your relationship with God. Amen. Incredible freedom, right? This is the gospel. There's a, there's a church that we've been involved with in our, in our efforts to kind of pursue our mission of growing disciples who make disciples, meaning how can all of us as Christians grow as apprentices of Jesus and how can we grow in such a way that we can serve as 
uh, spiritual mothers and fathers for other people and help other people walk with them spiritually as well. Disciples making disciples. It's the model Jesus gave us. And this, this church down in Fort Wayne has a prayer team and they were, they were praying and some people on the team really felt like the Lord was prompting them as a team and as a church to, to pray a very simple prayer over a period of time and it was simply this. God, please increase my hunger and thirst for you. God, please increase my hunger and my thirst for you. I commend this to you. Pray that every day for a month. It changes your whole engagement with the Lord. God, please increase my hunger and thirst for you. Because praying that begs a simple question, doesn't it? Are you thirsty? Are you hungering and thirsting for a right relationship with God? Jesus was fully human. He even experienced at the end of his life the kind of separation from God that we experience apart from Christ. He gave himself for us, for me, for you, so that we might come home to God. The good news is summarized so powerfully in Romans chapter three. These, These verses are amazing. Writes the apostle Paul, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Perfectly right relationship with God where nothing is amiss, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This righteousness is given, just given to you through faith in Jesus. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Oh, the wondrous cross. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? The final book of the Bible records the invitation to us, an invitation that stands open to everyone everywhere. The spirit and the bride, the Holy Spirit and the church, that is. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. The water of life. Jesus thirsted on the cross. He longed for God. He showed God's longing for us. Really, all we have to do is stop saying no and turn to Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the words you spoke from the cross, Lord Jesus. They resound through the centuries and carry down to us the depth of love in your heart for people. Thank you. Lord, would you search our hearts if there's any impure way in us, help us to become more like you. 
and help us to definitively and forever separate the process of growing to be more like you in this life and our understanding of our basic relationship with you through what you have done for us in Christ. Help us receive the identity you provide for us as sons and daughters of yours. Help us hear the words that you spoke over Jesus at his baptism as words that you speak over us now. This is my my son, my daughter, whom I love. With him, with her, I am well pleased. God, help us to live in your pleasure over us. Thank you that when you look at us, you see Jesus. Help us as we approach you to come to you with that faith and that confidence that you see us in just that way. We love you, Lord. Increase our hunger and thirst for you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.